everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Upbeat Dietitians podcast. We are joined today by Dr. Jen Salib Huber. Jen is a Canadian registered dietitian, naturopathic doctor, and intuitive eating counselor, and she's on a mission to help women manage menopause without diets and food rules. She helps women navigate the physical and emotional changes that happen in perimenopause and menopause, including the search for food freedom and body confidence. Working from a health at every size approach, she teaches women to become intuitive eaters and build body confidence at any stage of midlife. In addition to her one-on-one and group programs, she's the host of the Midlife Feast podcast and community that helps women quote unquote, undiet their lives after 40s so they can nourish a relationship with food that helps them discover the magic of midlife. We're so excited for today's episode. Enjoy. Hello, Jen. Welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. We are talking about all things menopause and diet culture today, which is so exciting because we've never, I don't think we've ever talked about this on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So what better time than now? (laughs) Before we get into it, we would love to hear from you kind of just so our audience knows a little bit more about you, a day in the life, what you do for work, past education, hobbies, what you do for fun, all that fun stuff. Um, So obviously I'm a dietitian. I'm also a naturopathic doctor and I have been in practice um, since plaid was last in style. So late nineties, um, I graduated. So I started, started studying nutrition in 1995. And, um, so that might've been before you guys were born. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I've been studying nutrition for a long time and I've seen all the fads and trends come and go and come and go. And that really was kind of the big part of why my own experience of being in perimenopause about seven years ago, eight years ago, um, kind of prompted me to want to just change things up in my own relationship with food. And that kind of led me to do what I do now, which is helping people manage menopause without diets and food rules. So I'm Canadian, but living overseas. So I live in the Netherlands. So I'm exclusively online, which so many of us are these days. Um, And I have three kids, three cats, and uh, I love to travel. So um, things are pretty good right now. That is so fun. I did not know that you were in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. That is... My geography is so bad. I know generally where Amsterdam. I'm like, so okay, I'm like, it's yeah. definitely far from Canada. I know that. <laughs> yeah. So the Netherlands is in Europe. And um, so right. we're kind of like just north of Belgium and Germany. Oh, okay. Yeah. There we go. Very cool. Well, yeah, today is all about menopause. Like, like Emma said, we have never gotten into this. We haven't experienced it ourselves either. So it just hasn't come up. But we know we have a lot of listeners who have questions about it. So we're so excited to get into this. And we want to start out with the basics, of course. So Jen, walk us through like what exactly like is menopause? Like when does it usually happen? What are some signs of it? What do we look for? Yeah. So I think the first thing to remember is that menopause is actually only one day. So what menopause is the day that marks 12 months since your last period. And the average age of that happening is around 51, but it really can happen anytime, like in the 10 years or so before that or after that, but it can also happen prematurely. So there will be some listeners at some point who might be in their twenties and actually be in menopause because they're in premature ovarian um, insufficiency or premature menopause. So keeping in mind, 
that it, there are some like normal-ish average ages, but obviously there's going to be kind of variations on that. But everything from like the first day of your period until usually your late 30s, early 40s is going to be what we call kind of your peak reproductive years. And then you hit these late reproductive years, things start to change on the inside. You may not be really noticing changes in your cycles, but when you do start to notice that your cycle is now maybe seven days early or seven days late, we know that you're probably in perimenopause. And so when you're in early perimenopause, you haven't missed a period yet. You probably haven't even had a hot flash yet, but you're definitely starting to notice changes in your sleep, changes in your mood, changes in your period. It might be heavy, painful. Um, you know, I describe them as like crime scene periods because they can get really, really awful and uncomfortable. And then when you start to skip periods, you're kind of scraping the bottom of the egg barrel as it were. And so when you start skipping periods, you're heading into late perimenopause where your estrogen and your progesterone levels are more consistently low. So it might mean that your symptoms are more predictable, but it also might mean that you're having them more often or more of them. So hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, all of that really starts to kind of come front and center when we're in late perimenopause. So then we hit those 12 months, we call it a day, and everything after that is postmenopause. So when you're in postmenopause, you're kind of in a new normal. Everything is low, you're not going up and down anymore. And for most people, symptoms will start to subside in those first couple of years. Um, not everyone, obviously, but for most people, myself included, postmenopause has been a much smoother ride than perimenopause. I'm really glad you clarified that it was kind of like one day because I feel like people view like menopause as like, yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know what the average person <laughs> thinks that long it is, but I know it's definitely longer than a day. It's like described as like this period of your life when you're going through menopause. Yeah. And so that's a great point. Like we don't go through menopause. We arrive at menopause. Mm -hmm. um, we go through the menopause transition, which is taking us from reproductive to post-reproductive. Um, but yeah, it really is something that we essentially arrive at. Um, but we do go through a lot in the often eight to 10 years leading up to it. So perimenopause is typically when, you know, people will start to feel like what fresh hell is this every day that they wake up, they don't recognize the body that they're in. They don't recognize the body that they see in the mirror. Um, they're starting to notice changes in like mood and sleep. So waking up at three in the morning for no good reason. So when I went into perimenopause, which was a little bit early around 37, my kids were like seven and five. And so they were finally sleeping through the night and I wasn't, and I was not okay with that. <laughs> I was really annoyed with that. Um, or starting to notice mood changes. So anxiety that like creeps up out of nowhere. People will often say, I am not an anxious person. Why am I worrying about every little thing? So noticing changes in the experience, I think is one of the things we need to talk about more. So we all would have gotten, you know, health education, sex education as we were going through school. And we would consider it a failure of public health if somebody started their period and didn't know what it was, or if somebody became pregnant and didn't know that they were pregnant, we would consider that a public health failure. And, you know, studies suggest that up to 50% of women have no idea that they're in perimenopause when they're in it. So really kind of focusing on the education and the awareness and what to expect and talking to, you know, I think kids in high school is and, and, and earlier is what we need to be focusing on so that we're, we're better preparing the next generations for a more comfortable transition through menopause.
That's such a good point. I feel like it's so, first of all, misunderstood. We don't even know what to look for. And also feared too. It's like a really big change, a lot of negative feelings and like mental health changes too, along with physical. And I guess that's a good segue into the next question I have for you is I know a lot of people express to me that are in this midlife area that body changes, weight gain, that can also be a side effect for some, an outcome, so to speak. What would you tell our listeners who are feeling really uncomfortable or nervous about that Mm. possible change? Yeah. And so weight changes in particular are experienced by most people who are going through the menopause transition. Um, You know, you can find studies that will say that it's 80%. I would say that if you poll a hundred women on the street, 99 of them would say that they went through body changes as they, you know, were going through this transition. Some of it likely does have to do with estrogen um, declining, but it doesn't have the impact on metabolism in the way that we once thought. It's not so much that our metabolism slows down. It's that the change in estrogen, one, leads to a redistribution of our assets. And so we go from a more pear shape to more of an apple shape. That is a change that is happening because of, you know, these hormone changes. We also know that as we go through, you know, our 40s, 50s, and 60s, that, there's some age expected changes in muscle mass, which likely contribute to overall metabolism. We know that there's changes in activity levels. Um, but if you really look at it on the whole, what we're seeing is that there's this entire population, uh, this entire demographic that goes through the same thing, which tells us that it's, a, it, that it's normal right? So a human body is a changing body and you will not find anybody who makes it through to the other side without some kind of body change. Um, the other really important piece to insert into this conversation is that we're, we're gathering evidence that there is also an increase in body dissatisfaction and dysmorphia, body dysmorphia in perimenopause. So we sometimes call perimenopause reverse puberty. And so just like we see um, you know, young girls and, you know, 12, 13, 14 at increased risk for body dysmorphia and uh, um, eating disorders, we're seeing that peak again happen, a second peak in, in midlife. So all of that kind of comes together in this perfect storm where you can just not feel like you recognize yourself on the inside or the outside, and it can be really uncomfortable. And if all you've ever known is restriction and dieting and trying to control what your body looks like, it can feel really uncomfortable to even consider doing anything else, um, which is obviously what, you know, as we intuitive eating dietitians are trying to do is to just try and say, like, there is another way you can actually be healthy and support your health and how you feel in your body without trying to control it. I feel like that is the perfect segue into our next topic. That is like Hannah started saying that. And I feel like that's just the best way to transition, honestly, (laughs) is like, what are, because now that you say like, oh, there's, there's an alternative way to think about it for people who are in kind of this midlife time, what are some foods and nutrients that might be beneficial to them? Because I'm sure they've seen lots of information online, yes. especially if they're in that, that headspace where they're just trying to figure out what is, what is happening. And I just want to feel 
better. Well, the great news is that for the most part, it doesn't radically change. So you don't have to turn everything on its head. You don't have to cut things out. Um, but there are some things that I think if we, you know, use that gentle nutrition add in principle, if we add in protein, for example, a little bit more and a little bit more often, we may be able to support or reduce some of that loss of muscle as we get older. It can help us, you know, to build and maintain muscle. It can help to support our bones. It can help to support um, feeling full and satisfied at meals. And so lots of people in perimenopause and menopause are dealing with cravings and hunger changes. And so kind of having that focus on what do I want to add in that will improve how I feel in my body is a really great way to stay focused um, on that kind of intuitive eating and that attunement process. So protein is one of my favorites, but I also really like it to encourage people to try on um, soy foods and phytoestrogen rich foods. And so foods that contain plant-based or plant-like similar estrogens can help to reduce some of the more bothersome symptoms of menopause, including hot flashes and night sweats. doesn't work for everyone. And so it definitely seems to be dose dependent. And it seems to be like related to, you know, the word that I love to hate consistency, consistency. So if you enjoy soy foods and can include them often and regularly, you may find that it helps to reduce hot flashes and night sweats. If you hate them and don't like them and have no interest in eating them, then that's probably not going to be the best choice, but there are lots of other reasons to include plant-based proteins too. So just looking at ways that we can kind of add those things in and then fiber is my other favorite. So you can't go wrong with fiber. It is probably the least sexy food recommendation you can ever talk about. But when we get to midlife, it is also the thing that gives us the most bang for a buck, whether we're talking about heart health um, or gut health or anything else. So those are kind of my top three. We, we love the nutrition by addition. It's just like a much <laughs> yeah. more feasible approach than I guess, speaking of segues, cut out this, cut out that. And we we're sure yeah. our listeners have heard that kind of stuff, especially as they get towards midlife and bodies are changing. And I feel like the internet gurus love to prey on people who are vulnerable like that. And they, they sure do looking for help. So what are some maybe like other common myths that like diet culture myths that you hear that you want to debunk. I know I have one. I want to ask about cutting out carbs. Yeah. Are there any that's always my favorite. Talk about? <laughs> yeah. That's always my favorite. So I always feel bad for carbs because they're so delicious. They're so satisfying and they're literally everyone's favorite food. And yet the internet loves to hate them. So it's like, they can't win. Um, so I always come at it with like facts and evidence. And so I'll say to people, when we look at population studies, of people who live really long, one thing that we find consistent pretty much across all cultures around the world is that they include carbohydrates. And we're not talking about a little bit, we're talking about like 45, 55%. Um, probably a big reason for that is that, you know, as you guys know, glucose is our body's preferred fuel. So if we want it to run efficiently, we need to give it the fuel that it wants. And fiber comes from carbohydrates primarily. So um, when we're looking at not only can we support our health, but like, how can we really support feeling good in our bodies, having energy, thinking clearly, um, managing mood. So I don't, I joke that in, you know, in menopause, we go we often have this symptom called mental rage, which is just this like anger, irritability paired with not being able to sleep well. And I can't tell you the number of times that 
that has improved dramatically when I've been able to convince someone to add in carbs. Um, you know, carbs make such a difference with our mood. So we need carbohydrates to make serotonin. Um, we obviously need it to produce energy and our brain really thrives on it. So brain fog being such a common symptom, don't deprive your brain of fuel. It makes no sense and there's no reason to, and it's delicious. So the carb myth really needs to die. Um, and there's all kinds of evidence. I share on my Instagram all the time, um, science and studies about carbohydrates and why we don't need to fear them, but yet the myth persists. So I love debunking that one for sure. Um, another one is it kind of coming back to soy that lots of people are concerned about soy causing breast cancer um, or having kind of a role in those types of estrogen dominant cancers. And, and we know that that's not the case either. So again, lots of good evidence to show that it doesn't cause cancer. At worst, it doesn't cause it. At best, it may and likely does reduce the risk of many different kinds of cancer. So um, soy's phytoestrogens are extremely, extremely weak compared to our body's own estrogens. So in the range of like one two hundredth to one one thousandth the strength of our own estrogens. Um, so it's impossible to eat more um, or to eat so much that it would have a negative effect. Um, my third one is related to fasting, which is kind of the latest, you know, trend. Um, and so, you know, fasting, I think, I don't, I don't know when it really started. It was like the evolution of keto. When keto stopped working the way that everyone promised it would, fasting was like hot on its heels to come in and take keto's place at the top of the diet throne. Um, but again, related to how we're feeling in our bodies, it doesn't feel good to only eat in a certain window. Um, it doesn't help our brain to work well. It doesn't help us to fall asleep. And the studies show that it doesn't improve the outcome that everyone thought it would, which was related to weight loss. So um, I think that, you know, when we're looking at patterns of eating as unsexy as it is, three meals a day, eat when you're hungry, <laughs> prioritize satisfaction, um, build balanced plates, like all of those basics that I was taught in 95, and I'm sure you guys were taught as well, was still really hold true for helping to support us at any age, but especially through menopause. I'm always telling people I, that I'm like, this is going to sound so boring. They're like, well, what else? They're like, what else? I'm like, I know it sounds like super unsexy and boring, but like, we're not even doing any of these things. Let's start there. And then maybe we can add, you know, yeah. more fancy sex nutrition in the future. We got to do one thing at a time. So I like, as an example, this, so this literally just came up today. So somebody that I am working with was really struggling with like nighttime eating. And so, you know, was saying like, oh, I'm really good all day. And, you know, I, I eat well and, but then I get to the evening and I just can't stop snacking. When we looked at how they were defining eating well, it was having a single cup of Greek yogurt for breakfast and a coffee. It was having a salad with protein for lunch. And then not having anything until dinner six or seven hours later. Classic. And, you know, yeah, classic. Exactly. And so we just started talking about like, okay, let's actually like have the Greek yogurt, but like, let's add things to it and let's really bulk up that salad and let's have a snack before you head home. Um, and she was kind of flabbergasted at how quickly and easily it managed her quote unquote nighttime cravings because she wasn't going into the evening starving. Like it sounds really boring, but it works. We don't need a magic formula. Um, we just need to eat. Like it's as simple as that. Exactly. I'm glad you brought up the fasting too, because that's definitely been 
I feel like it's had a, had a phase a couple of years ago where it was huge in my experience from what I see. And then I feel like it's like, for whatever reason, again, just like everywhere yeah. all the time. And when we're talking about fasting, one of the biggest side effects that I see of fasting is that it essentially recruits binge eaters. Um, so if you weren't a binge eater before, there's a good chance that you're going to have binge eating like behaviors after even just a couple of months. And if you're dealing with cravings in the evening, do not think that fasting is going to help um, because it is only going to massively intensify those. Even if it feels like it's working at first, like the novelty factor will be there. But after a while, you are going to be hungry and you are going to want to eat everything. And it's going to be really hard to pay attention to any of your hunger and fullness cues because you're only going to eat because you can. Mm -hmm. It's not sustainable no. or fun. It's no. not fun as well. No, I love breakfast way too much. Same. <laughs> yes. Yes. Perfect. Well, I feel like that did a very good job of like kind of chatting and wrapping up all things like menopause, things to add more, things that maybe they've heard online that might not necessarily be true. Do you have any like last thoughts, like lasting messages you want to send our audience away with if they could yeah, take one thing I, away? <laughs> take one thing away is that menopause is the end of your period. It is not the end of you. So many people fear menopause. They fear getting older. They fear what it means, the changes. Um, and I can tell you that I am not alone in loving this next season of life. Um, there is so much to look forward to. And one of the best parts is not having a period. So um, definitely can look forward to that. But yeah, it's not the end. It's just another beginning, as cheesy as that sounds. I am quite excited for that one little bonus. That'll be nice. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be nice. Well, before we get into our very related bonus question, Jen, let our listeners know where they can find you, any links you want to share, how they can work with you if they're interested. Let them know how they can hear more from you. So the best place to, where I hang out too much is on Instagram. So they can find me at menopause.nutritionist. And there's a link in my bio with lots of things, but um, I love welcoming people to my podcast, the midlife feast, and also my membership community, the midlife feast community. Um, and that's where people can kind of work with me, learn to manage menopause without dieting and food rules and hang out with other people who are going through the same thing. Amazing. We'll link all that in the show notes as well. If you guys want to look there too. But thank you so much, Jen, for coming on today. This was such a great episode. I know even if people aren't going through menopause or like approaching it, they're going to take a lot away from this just because there's so much misinformation out there about it and also a lot of fear mongering about menopause yeah. and aging in general. So this will be Definitely. really great for them. To, well, this was really great. By this time, they have listened to the episode. So <laughs> thanks so much it was for really having great. me. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks guys. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in on this episode of the Upbeat Dietitians with your hosts, Emily Krause and Hannah Thompson. We appreciate you all so much for continuing to support us. In order to support us and sustain the success of this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. If you'd like to provide us feedback for future episodes and guest stars, follow us on Instagram at the Upbeat Dietitians. Lastly, you can show us support by providing a monthly donation using the link at the end of our bio. Once again, thank you so much for listening today and stay tuned next Wednesday for a new episode. 
Until then, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.